Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 69, Highlights, Volume 3. In this episode, I wish to honor Martin Luther King Jr. by highlighting important clips from Medicare for All Explained about racism in the U.S. healthcare system and how Medicare for All can reduce the racism that exists in healthcare. I often treat disparities and inequities as being the same, but as Dr. Susan Rogers explained in episode 28, they are not. No, actually, they're not the same. Uh, disparities are differences in the health between populations, between racial groups, socioeconomic status, and they are linked to some social issues, but they're just disparities or differences, whereas inequities are unnecessary differences. That is, they stem from avoidable and unfair and unjust reasons, and it implies that there is a ethical dimension to that and that they, they shouldn't be there. There will always be disparities because of differences that we can't do anything about. Inequities we can address. We can uh, change those. And as Dr. Rogers explained, the U.S. healthcare system is plagued with inequities. Oh, definitely, definitely so. And it stems for years and years. I mean, even if uh, you look back in slavery, the way that they looked at the health of slaves was totally different. But where we are now, really to understand the inequities that we have now, we have to look at how we got here. And if you look at some of the policies that the government has done that created the the segregation that's in this country really created most of the inequities that are here. The fact that you have such marked segregation in this in this country with different access to a lot of resources, in environmental differences, lack of jobs, social services. And these were all done because of federal policies. It's not that black people just decided to live in ghettos. That was the only place where they could live. And that was by law, federal government. You couldn't get a mortgage in uh, Chicago even because, you know, it because of redlining. And so black people had to live where they could live. And so that that really affects some of the uh, access to, to things that people need, like health care. And it's because of this structural racism that exists in this country that we have these inequities of health care. Later in the same episode, I asked Dr. Rogers if states in the South didn't expand Medicaid because they didn't want to help African Americans and other minorities. Oh, I think that had a lot to do with it. That had a lot to do with it. And I think, unfortunately, what people don't seem to realize is that it's to everyone's benefit that everyone is healthy. And that when you negatively impact one group, 
you're actually negatively impacting the whole group. And I think that the policies don't reflect that and that they would rather disenfranchise a whole group thinking the rest will be okay, but they're not. It's to everyone's benefit that everyone is healthy. If you have a business, you want your workers to be able to stay healthy so that they can continue to go to work. You want workers to be able to work so that they can pay taxes into your system. You never know what you're uh, negating by not allowing people opportunities. They don't have the opportunity to develop. So it's important that the whole health, the whole state is healthy. And by, like I say, disenfranchising one group also negatively impacts the other group. I think sometimes we, we don't think about this, but if you look and you think about how the Disabilities Act affected those with disabilities, I wonder how many people think about that when they walk through a door that automatically opens. That was all because of the Disabilities Act that we all benefit from. And so we have to get under the out of the notion that not helping one group has no effect on everybody else, because it does. As we continued, Dr. Rogers explains why she thinks Medicare for All is a big part of the solution to health care racial inequities. Well, for me, a big part of the solution is Medicare for All, because one of the ways to address these health inequities is to, for everyone to have access to care. There's no question that getting care will improve lives. It will decrease mortality. The statistics show it, that even with now under the Affordable Care Act, that those who had the benefit of Medicaid expansion or the ability to get insurance through the health exchange and through the Affordable Care Act, they had improved health. They were able to get things treated that are easily treatable. They would get the care that they would need when urgent uh, things came up. They were able to access care. Now, Medicare for All will not eliminate all health inequities. There's no question about that because there's so many other things involved that I've talked about that address these inequities. But Medicare for All, I think, is one of the first things that we need to address because we have to be able to have people have access to care because there's no question that everybody at some point in their life needs medical care. And there's no question that there's a lot of things that could be done to fix those problems if you have the access to it. And the other thing, too, that Medicare for All would do is that it would provide facilities in areas of need versus facilities where they can make money. Right now, you've got inner city hospitals that are closing because they can't afford to stay open. Any hospital or healthcare facility that is totally funded by Medicare or Medicaid often cannot stay financially solvent because those, the reimbursement rates for those are not even covering the cost. So when you have neighborhoods where most of the, the inhabitants have Medicaid or Medicare, they can't support a community hospital there. So that those hospitals are closing, it's the same problem in rural areas. So geography makes a difference. With Medicare for All, there would be access geographically that people could get to. Knowing people in low socioeconomic status and in poverty neighborhoods have more difficulties with transportation. 
and that when you have these facilities in their geographic area, it's easier to access. And it would even out the field. You wouldn't have five major hospitals within a five-mile radius, and then five miles away, you have absolutely nothing. So that would have to change so that everybody could get access. So there's a lot that Medicare for All would do to help address some of the inequities in other areas. Earlier in the episode, Dr. Rogers and I discussed how Medicare for All would remove financial barriers to care. Dr. Roger then discusses ways Medicare for All would help minorities economically. So I think that if hospitals were in poor communities, which where many of them have unfortunately closed, that would help employ the people who live in that community. Throughout the country, a lot of community hospitals are major employers of that surrounding community especially in rural communities, it's often the major employer uh, for that rural community. And so when that hospital closes, the whole area gets more blighted because you don't have areas that people can get to to go to work and that it ends up sustaining the neighborhood. In a sense, everybody is healthier and they're socioeconomically better because what happens now under this fight, you know, privately financed for-profit system is that facilities are built where they can make money and not where they're needed. And unless we do something to drastically change that, we will continue this whole loss of healthcare facilities in poor neighborhoods. And that what happens is that not only do the poor in this country get less, but the rich get even more than they need. And it's just Morally wrong. Episode 28 was published on February 15, 2020, just before the U.S. closed down because of COVID. Almost one year later, in episode 48, I asked Dr. Rogers what COVID made apparent about racial inequities in our healthcare system. Well, one of the things that COVID has made very apparent is the it's just amplified the intensity and severity of the inequities that exist. I think for a lot of people, these inequities were invisible. They, they didn't impact their lives necessarily. They were not visible to them. But now they are just clearly there on the news every day in the newspaper stories and It's made these inequities much more obvious, much more visible, and they can't be ignored anymore. Along those lines, there have been claims that Blacks and Hispanics are more susceptible to COVID, and that has caused them to be hospitalized more and have a higher fatality rate, but that is not the case, is it? Not at all. One of the ways I like to put it is it's racism, not race. And just because someone is a minority or an immigrant or person of color, that in itself doesn't put them at higher risk. It's the racism in this uh, and the structural racism in this country that puts them at higher risk. Um, It's interesting because back in 1899, W.B. Du Bois wrote a book called The Philadelphia Negro. And in this book, he looked at 
why it, he asked himself the question, why is it that the black people who are living in Philadelphia have a much more severe impact from tuberculosis, that it causes more death, it causes more sickness and dysfunction. And so what he did back in 1899 was he went door to door, he looked at things, he asked questions. And what he came up with was that it was the socioeconomics and the environment that black people live that created this disproportionate, intense poor outcomes from tuberculosis with black people who live there. So it was not even then he proved that it was nothing genetic. It was nothing innate about black people. It was the environment in which they live that caused them to have worse outcomes from tuberculosis. So here we are over a hundred years later asking the same question. What is it about black people? What is it about immigrants? What is it about people of color that make them have worse outcomes from this pandemic? And it's the structure here. It's the inequities that were built into the structure of this country that cause those differences in outcomes. The Genome Project has shown that there is no genetic difference. So there's nothing innate about the person that predisposes them. But it's the environments in which they are forced to live. It's the poverty, it's the lack of health services, it's the lack of grocery stores in their neighborhoods and the ability to buy healthy foods. It's a whole lot of factors, but it has nothing to do with the genetics of the person. Later in episode 48, I said that I thought the pandemic would make people more aware of the need to separate employment from health insurance. I asked if Dr. Rogers agrees with that assessment, and if she agrees, why does she think there hasn't been more of a push now to separate employment from health insurance? I agree with you. It is amazing how looking at the number of people who are now have become unemployed because of COVID, who have no source of income, who have no insurance now, who are unable to pay for basic things such as food and housing now, why single payer would not seem to make perfect sense to everyone. And I don't really have a great answer for that. I think a lot of it is emotional, that people are tied to this this emotional connection to private insurance because we have just been told it's the propaganda from the health insurance company that this is the only way to do it, that we will give you choice, that you need this in order to have care. And so these emotions get in the way of you really taking a good look at how it is done elsewhere. One of the things this country has done is it's just given us this concept that we are the best in the world in everything, including healthcare, and that why would we want what other countries do when we're already doing it the best way? And people have fallen for that rather than objectively looking at their environment and saying, this doesn't work. And I think we have to find a way to get people to turn off their emotions and to look at this sensibly. And one of the similarities I see is I look at people who do behaviors that 
they know are bad, but they continue to do it because, well, I like doing this, whether it's smoking, it's whatever, you know, people continue to do things for emotional reasons, even though intellectually and sensibly, they know that it's the wrong thing to do. And so I think the propaganda and all that's been hyped out by private insurance, by the government telling you that this will not work, that people just choose to believe that there's an emotional connection. And then a lot of people who are working, it's like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. They don't want to lose what they have and risk it for something that they're they're not 100% sure that it's better. And that's why even people who are working still cling to this concept of coupling employment to private health insurance rather than going for um, single payer. It's just a problem because talking to people who have traveled to other countries, people who live in other countries who come to visit here, they're just amazed. They don't get it. And a friend of mine wrote in an email, well, you know that single payer is just so complicated, and that's why only 32 out of 33 industrialized countries have done it, which (laughs) when you think about it, it's very ironic. In episode 41, I asked Dr. Sanji Shiram, what are the most concerning issues related to racism in our healthcare system? So, um, I, you know, I think that it's, uh, everybody has um, different vantage points of how they approach, um, you know, this large and complex issue of racism in healthcare. Um, I came at it from the vantage point of when I looked at um, who the uninsured are and why they are uninsured, um, racism really uh, was just glaring to me because uh, the demographics show that 59% of America's uninsured are people of color, and that's across the entire country. And then what I found uh, even more alarming is how when you move from state to state, the disparities become even more drastic. Uh, you know, a lot of eyes have been on Minnesota uh, this summer. Um, and, you know, Minnesota, just as an example, people of color make up 21% of the population, but they make up 44% of the uninsured. And that narrative is very common across the Midwest, which we don't really think of as being particularly diverse, but it is uh, very telling that there is not a single part of the country where uh, where being uninsured is not a racial injustice. I followed up by pointing out that in a previous episode, it was mentioned that social determinants should be called political determinants because we can change them if we want to. I then asked Dr. Shriram how much he thinks that political determinants of healthcare have an effect. So, you know, I'm glad that you bring up this distinction. I kind of blend the two together and call them socio-political determinants of health. And what we find is that the the work that any clinician does is only a, is only impacting about twenty percent at best of a person's health. Um, 
you know, and that's like best case scenario that you're able to impact about 20% of a person's health. The remaining 80% is impacted by a range of issues, housing, nutrition, transportation, employment, quality of pay, uh, violence, um, and immigration, a whole range of issues come together and uh, their collective impact is going to determine a lot of health outcomes, 80%. And, um, and that's not a best case, worst case scenario. That's just it. So that is what I think clinicians have to understand the context of clinical work is that we have to recognize that, you know, all of these forces can either undermine or support our work in the right kind of sociopolitical environment. And when I look at policies like Medicare for All and when I talk about them in communities of color, I'm quick to point out that Medicare for All will not be enough if we are talking about it in the midst of a food desert. Uh, Medicare for All will not be enough if there is massive amounts of homelessness. Medicare for All is not going to be enough if there are unequal uh, job opportunities in a community. And so to me, Medicare for All must be part of a larger network of policies that are all committed to racial equity um, in, uh, in ways that I don't know if even the progressive movement has gotten there yet. I then asked Dr. Sri Ram if he agrees with Dr. Rogers that Medicare for All is a necessary step to address racial inequities in health care. I absolutely agree with Dr. Rogers that this is a critical step in the right direction. And for me, I look at Medicare for All as critical racial justice policy for three things. And there's, I mean, there's plenty more reasons why, but these three kind of come first to my mind. One is, is that, you know, when we talk about universality, right, I think that this is where a lot of people who are for Medicare for All might run into uh, friends and family who are questioning them, saying that, look, I'm for universal health care. Why do you have to be such a stickler for Medicare for All? And what I point out is that are we talking about the same thing when we talk about universality? Because the Medicare for All that I'm talking about includes undocumented people. It includes LGBTQ people. It treats reproductive health care as simply health care and, and doesn't section it off as um, a separate entity that has uh, um, additional hurdles uh, before a person can access it. And the reason why these elements of universality matter is because they are all very tied to race. Um, you know, I think with undocumented immigrants not being excluded from you know, health care, it's obvious how that hurts uh, racial justice. But with, um, you know, when we exclude or create barriers for our LGBTQ brethren, uh, that hurts um, minority LGBTQ people more so than almost anyone else because they are facing so many sociopolitical hurdles as it is, and then healthcare should not be exacerbating those hurdles. Um, reproductive healthcare, um, real, you know, if we're going to talk about wanting to eliminate the disparity between uh, black moms and uh, white moms when it comes to maternal mortality, we need to talk about the entire range of reproductive health, not just postpartum, 
uh, management of care. And so to me, like universality has to be very uh, clear and specific about what it actually means. It can't just be universality in rhetoric, but not in reality. Um, you know, a second element for why I believe Medicare for All is crucial racial justice policy is because it recognizes the economic realities of how people of color live their life. And that is to say that, you know, um, the patients that I take care of, they change jobs as, um, as they need to in order to make ends meet. They will, you know, do some schooling on the side. They will, you know, um, add hours to their shift all in the name of just trying to get by. But all of these financial decisions should not change their eligibility for care. And with our current system, we have so much fragmentation that a person deciding that they are going to, you know, find time in their life to get a certification or a license can often mean that they are no longer eligible for certain kinds of coverage and must wait before they can qualify for a program like Medicaid. And instead, what Medicare for All does is that it just makes care continuous, that all of these financial decisions are done independently of your eligibility for health care because your humanity was the only eligibility that you ever needed for health care under Medicare for All. And this is crucial to how families of color make it through uh, situations like the pandemic and all of its economic devastation is that healthcare becomes a source of peace of mind because it's continuous. Lastly, and, and I think this is huge, is that Medicare for All is about reinvesting in communities the way that our status quo simply does not. A global budget for hospitals means that a hospital in a poor community, a hospital in a predominantly Black or Latinx community, or a rural hospital does not struggle to stay open simply because the people that it serves are low income or are on Medicaid. That hospital has um, just as much ability to stay open and meet its mission of public health compared to uh, hospitals and clinics in wider, wealthier parts of the country. And that, to me, represents a huge investment in those communities and makes a budget statement that we believe in, in your health, we believe in your well-being, and we want you to do more than survive. We want you to thrive. And this hospital is going to not only stay open, but it's going to expand upon its mission of public health in ways that the status quo simply does not because it's a multi-payer complex system that drains hospital resources in ways that don't benefit health. So for all of these reasons, I look at Medicare for All and I see a racial justice policy, which is critical to our, to our future. I would like to conclude with a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhuman. End quote. Of course, Medicare for All will not resolve all the racism in healthcare but it is one necessary step to get the process started, and passing it would be a great way to honor Dr. King. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. 
information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.